Transmitter device activated. Coordinate set for Earth 2. Hey everyone, welcome to the Earth 2 Podcast, the podcast where we explore the origins and development of the DC Comics multiverse and the legacy of their Golden Age characters throughout the Silver and the Bronze Ages of comics. I'm Peter Watson. And I'm David Steele. And welcome back. Thank you for joining us now this week. You won't be surprised to learn, I'm sure, we're doing issue six of The Spectre. Hooray! Mm. We're not exactly getting bored of The Spectre. It's a character we're, we are very <laughs> fond of and we're interested in, but True. I think this issue, getting ahead of it slightly, really cements for me that they are they do get a bit repetitive and a bit same of these Silver Age stories. So, yes. we'll see how we got on with this one. I'll just flag up again right from the start. My history, the sort of <laughs> the forming of America, is not what it could be, I suppose. <laughs> so... Maybe our transatlantic listeners will have a better idea of a lot of what's being referenced in this one. Anyway, Pizzy, yes. do you want to tell everyone about the cover to issue six of the Spectre? Yes, it has a lovely deep blue background. We have a different kind of Spectre logo, a yellow, almost smoky kind of flavour to it. It's weird. There's almost like grains of sand almost to it. Mm, it's very mm-hmm. interesting. Yep. I was very struck by it. Do you know what? Actually, I'm going to stick my head out right now and say the logo on the cover is my favourite thing about this entire comic. <laughs> <laughs> interesting. <laughs> And the whisper coming off the form of the spectre who's flying in at the top of the cover. Mm. And he's flying down into an ancient-looking street. Yes. Where there are two pilgrims who are appearing out of barrels, it looks like. Yeah, and it looks like it's a street full of dustbins and barrels and stuff. It's very, very strange. Mm -hmm. There's also a fire hydrant in it as well. Yeah, when you see pilgrims. Yes, I don't mean in the Stan Lee sense. (laughs) I mean, people clad in 17th century gear. And they're both firing blunderbusses up at the Spectre. That's the best way to put it, I think. Yes. It's all frilly collars and frilly cuffs and large brimmed hats with buckles on them. Now, why they had buckles in their hats, I have no idea. Indeed. The one at the front has got a smashing moustache. Yes. And the one behind, look at the size of that mouth. It's terrifying. I know, it's shocking. Absolutely shocking. It looks like he could eat the spectre. And it's actually, I think they're both coming out of dustbins because you can see on the left there's a dustbin lid flying behind mm-hmm. the, the one with the moustache. So, and on the right hand corner of the cover, we can see another frilly cuffed hand lifting the lid of another dustbin. Indeed, yes. So, Pilgrims and Dustbins, not the name of a band who supported menswear. No. Murphy Anderson's involved in the cover, isn't he? Oh, yes, he's the anchor. Jerry Grandinetti is the penciler, ah, same as the art team inside. Right, of course. Well, as you'd expect from a, a Murphy Anderson Spectre illustration, there's a full moon lurking in the background. Of course there is. Feels like a while since we've had a Murphy Anderson full moon. But there you go. <laughs> and from the dustbin that the Pilgrims are popping out of, there is a logo that says Pilgrims of Peril. Pilgrims of Peril. That also could be the name of a band that supported another band at some point. <laughs> I'm being very flippant this week, listeners, because I really don't like this comic. (laughs) I'm just trying to keep my own interest up. Well, let's jump into it. So, yes, issue six of The Spectre, published on the 16th of July, 1968. Neil Adams has gone. Yeah. I did some digging about to try and find if I could see any sort of colloquial sort of evidence to such a thing. And I found an issue of Comic Book Artist that has an interview with Carmine Infantino that made reference to Neil Adams writing and drawing Dead Man and how, in Carmine's words, that killed the book. And then I did some more digging and found an interview with Neil himself in issue 56 of Comic Book Marketplace. And that has Neil complaining about how when he was working on Dead Man, because it, when it started mm-hmm. becoming popular, everyone and his mother basically wanted to write a Dead Man script. 
like yeah. Robert Kanegar, blah, blah, wanted to do mm-hmm. one, so-and-so wanted to do one. And Neil said to his editor, look, let me just take over the writing and the drawing mm-hmm. because it will keep it consistent. Yeah. And for whatever reason, that it wasn't successful. Carmine's of the opinion it killed the book. I don't know. We've seen an awful lot of negativity towards Neil Adams in the letters pages of the, the more recent issues mm-hmm. of The Spectre we've done. And it's almost had some kind of impact because we get to issue six and he's gone. And the artwork's very different. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just get on with it and see how we see how we go. <laughs> so, it's not as an opening splash panel page as such. We have three panels in page one. We have a, a shot of a, a moody alleyway in the first panel. There's a lurid red The Spectre logo hovering in the sky. And we see rubbish cans overflowing. Looks like there's someone asleep in the corner. There's a cat. And a chap in a hat is walking along, cutting through this alleyway. And a caption says... Ashcan Alley, in the old quarter of Gateway City. A passerby's face turns ashen as... Yeah, because at the front of the panel, we see... This is obviously very similar to the cover. We see one of the dustbins. The lid is lifting up, and it seems to be being lifted up by a hand of someone who's inside the bin. And this chap who's walking down Ashcan Alley exclaims... A, a, a hand coming out of that ash can. See, that's another difference, isn't it, listeners? Over here, we would say just rubbish bin. But in America, <laughs> at this point, at least, they said ash cans. So there we mm. go. Um, panel two shows a figure emerging from the, the ash can. It's a chap who's dressed up very like the, the pilgrims that we saw on the cover. He's sort of tinted red. It's a cloud of what looks like green smoke all around him. He has the... The long curly hair and the beard and the hat with the buckle on it. And he's bearing a weapon, a blunderbuss, if you like. And he looms up over the chap who's walking down Ashcan Alley. And the chap is covering his face with his arms. He's terrified and he cries, Man alive! His clothes, so ragged, so old, as if he just climbed out of a grave. Gosh, right, we have a slow dissolve then. Elsewhere, similarly, concurrently. Change of location for panel three. The caption for this one says, Close by, a housewife opens her broom closet and is nearly swept off her feet by the sight of... It's another large ghostly pilgrim. We can see more clearly here that his clothes are a little worse for wear. He's honing what looks like a branch. We'll probably get that mm. explained, the details of that, the relevance. In his right hand, he's flung open the door. We can see mops and cleaning equipment flying everywhere. And the woman screams and she cries, Ah, how'd he get in there? That awful Stench! And then some more text underneath this this horrible domestic scene says, And in this uncanny manner reappear the original inhabitants of this sector of Gateway City. Their past is lost in time and legend, but their future presents a dire threat to life, not only in Gateway City, but to the entire Earth as well. Pilgrims Pilgrims of of Peril! So there we go. We arrive top of page two and the caption at the top says part, part one, one the, the challenge, challenge from, from beyond. beyond and a little bit of text says as if a panic button had simultaneously been pressed throughout the old quarter the streets become filled with frightened people on the run we also get a caption that says the art is by jerry Grandetti and murphy anderson a story by gardner fox so gardner fox is back after the last couple of stories of neil adams and mike friedrich right now mm-hmm. It's a return to Gardner, who obviously wrote the earlier stories when the Spectre came back. The art's interesting. The, shall we say, almost realism of the Neil Adams work has gone. It's certainly back towards a flavour of Murphy Anderson, Mm -hmm. but there's also a slightly cartoony sense to it. What do you think, Pizzi? Yeah, when I was reading this, I was reminded very much of some EC comics I've been reading lately. Right. It seems like a more 
basic art style, but there's some quite good expressions and stuff in some of the faces. Yeah. But, and it's very storytelling. Yeah. In a more simplistic format to uh-huh. what we've been reading of late. Yeah. But it's it's still quite effective. And the colour palette is, is dense in this. Yeah. I mean, it looks remarkably different from what we've had. Mm-hmm. It's not that the artwork isn't as detailed. I see. I would just say sort of differently detailed, but there's definitely a sort of more mm-hmm. a simplistic sort of. Yeah. I mean, we see in this first panel the old quarter uh, of Gateway City, so the buildings are drawn in a very sort of stylized, old-fashioned type way. Yeah. People are running away as a couple of ghostly pilgrims are standing in the middle of the street. I mean, the change in artwork is, and possibly just actually the story as well, is kind of symptomatic of why I didn't really enjoy this so much after enjoying the Neil Adams stuff so much. Yeah. But we'll, we'll keep going with it. So mm. two ghostly pilgrims, the chap wearing the, the branch, who we saw on page one, and the other guy with his musket. There looks a little smoke sort of emerging from you know the, the things that they're bearing, sort of all that smoke's cloudy up in the sky. So anyway, one of the pilgrims is yelling, Out! All of you! Out! And his mate says, this place must be free of unbelievers if our incantations are to be effective. Yes, people are panicking and running away, and we're still only on panel one of page two. <laughs> panel two, we see a young boy running away from his mother. His mother yells, Billy, come back here! Billy replies, I forgot my water pistol, Ma. I gotta go back for it. Yeah, Billy's little boy, brown hair, wearing a white jumper and blue jeans. Looks a little bit like the Golden Age Kid Eternity, if you ask me. Yeah. Anyway, so panel two, you can see that there are general cries of help. Sort of floating in the air, we can see the smoke that the pilgrims are creating is sort of hovering. There's a crowd of people standing at the pavement as a police car has screeched to a halt. And Detective Jim Corrigan has got out of the car, and a man in the crowd is saying, It's Captain Corrigan. If anyone can save us from the pilgrims in fog, he can. The next panel is very stylized, actually, and I quite like this panel. It's sort of almost bookended by an image of Jim Corrigan. And then I show the spectre mm-hmm. with the crowd standing in the middle. There's a bit of text that says, Captain of Detectives, Jim Corrigan, who died long ago, but whose earthbound spirit, the spectre, still roams the world, searching out evil and eliminating it in the name of good. Restored to life by the awesome powers granted to the spectre, Policeman Corrigan also battles in his limited human way against injustice, with a timely assist from his astral other self. So that's a very welcome bit of text, filling in new readers if they hadn't read The Spectre before, telling them what's going on. So we return to the story, and a wide-eyed man wearing a blue cap, wearing a blue suit, and we can see the very detailed expressions, as Pete said, on the, the rest of the crowd of this man in blue, standing in front of Jim Corrigan, and he's saying, Back in the old quarter, four pilgrim-dressed weirdos popped out of nowhere! And a very smart-looking man in a suit with a moustache, he exclaims, Scared the living daylights out of us! That's another mention of the... Timothy Dalton, James Bond film in this podcast. I think it's about the fourth Bond movie reference we've had. And it's at least the third or fourth reference to the other yeah. likes. A woman standing next to Moustache Man says, Drove us out of our homes! So, the text then at the top of page three says, On the outskirts of the old quarter, billowy clouds of thick fog rise up, higher and higher. Yeah, the smoky fog that we saw forming in page two has grown thicker and thicker, clouding out everything. Captain Corrigan walks towards the smoke and he says, It's like a barrier. Sealing off the place from the rest of the city. A man in the crowd says, Who who wants to go back with them in there? Someone else says, Luckily, we all got out. Caption for panel two. Suddenly, through the dense haze, a sobbing, frightened voice. Yes, we can just about see the shape of Billy as he cries, Mama! Mama, help me! I I can't get out! And Billy's mum says, It's my son, Billy! Oh, Captain Corrigan! Save him! Jim says, I... I can't. There's no way to reach him. And he thinks, unless... 
Suddenly, from the gloom of the fog-shrouded sunlight sweeps a grim form. A spectral hand reaches out and grips Jim Corrigan. And the spectre looms behind Jim in this panel, puts his hand on Jim's shoulder, saying, I got the message, Jim. Brace yourself. We are crashing in. In the next panel, Spectre and Corrigan have forced their way into the fog. They can see Billy floating in the fog up above them. Jim says, We're too late, Spectre. The Spectre's given massive emphasis there. Mm, it's mm. got interesting. Billy's caught up in that swirling fog, being whisked up and away. The ghostly guardian replies, I sense evil beings at work here, in league with demonic forces. Jim, you round up those pilgrims while I go after the boy. So we got boy in trouble. That's quite like what we had a couple of issues ago. <laughs> That's quite interesting. Mm-hmm. The text then for this final panel, page three, says, Summoning up the astral power of his body, the ghostly guardian hurtles through non-time and space and emerges into an eldritch realm. Yes, now this is our first very trippy panel of the issue. Now it's interesting because the spectre looks very much like a, a Murphy Anderson drawn spectre. Mm-hmm. But the rest of it looks a little bit more Steve Ditko, Doctor Strange definitely, than yeah, definitely Murphy an Anderson. Yeah, mm-hmm. We have around the outside some weird shapes, weird growths in the middle. There's a twisting kaleidoscope of colours. It looks like a pond actually, mm-hmm. now that we think about it. It looks like there's maybe weird trees that have grown down. We see that Billy is kneeling down beside this pond. Spectre flies down towards him, saying, Billy, what are you doing? And Billy says, Emptying this lake with my water pistol by shooting the water into that small hole. I gotta do it. Something's forcing me to. Yeah, we can see that Billy's dipping his water pistol into the water, into the swirling kaleidoscope of colours, and it looks like there's a hole in the ground in front of him. Turn the page now to page four. And the caption to the first panel of page four says, To his stunned surprise, the spectre suddenly starts scooping up hands full of the lake water. Yep, we see the spectre, hands full of water, same time as Billy's still firing his water pistol into the hole. Spectre's thinking, A compelling force, trying to gain control over me by making me do the same thing as Billy. My psychic sense tells me that to break the spell being cast over me, I must do the impossible. Empty the lake into that hole. Next panel, see Billy reaching in again with his water pistol. Spectre's standing over the hole, letting the water fall out of his hands into the hole. Billy is saying, Gosh, I don't know how anyone picks us to empty the lake this way. The only way is the Spectre way, Billy. And the caption for the next panel says, The Wonder Wraith's cloak lifts and swirls above the lake. As it creates an astral suction, the water raises up. Yep, that's a very helpful CWC caption. Billy responds and says, Wow, Spectre's made himself gigantic and whipped up a water spout. That's exactly what we see, a sort of little motion sequence of the Spectre growing to a large size and gathering up the water. The caption for the next panel says, Faster and faster swirls the cosmic cloak, turning the water into steam, driving it in the tiny hole. Once again, see what you see, this giant sort of sound effect to signify the water evaporating or changing form. Billy cries, Spectre, you did the impossible! But to be fair, this is a very nice panel. There's some very, very nice things going on in these pages. At the bottom of the final panel, page four, a weird, loud voice can be heard saying, Rash beings, do not think yourselves free of my control. Top of page five now. Page five only has two panels. The large one at the top. You see the spectre starting to shrink back down to normal size. Billy behind him looks like the pond is empty. And standing in front of the spectre is a very large, thickly built yellow figure 
wearing blue trunks, and he has a sort of spiky head and sort of neck and back sort of thing going on. It's almost as though it's a sort of protective skull type, you know, mm, bone thing mm-hmm. that's grown out of his skin. Armadillo like almost. Yeah. Two sort of white antlers going on. He's ma- lifting up a massive boulder as the spectre lands. Anyway, Billy sees this guy and he cries, Spectre, who is that? And the large yellow figure replies, I am Nawar, demon lord of this realm of Giempo. I have decreed that none who enters my domain shall escape. Wow, Spectre, as he's returned to normal size. And I must say, the art is is very nice on this page. This page might well go on the socials, I think, Mm -hmm. is cracking. The Spectre replies, saying, Then meet the exception to your rule, Nawar. The rest of this panel, almost an insert, Nawar hurls the boulder he was bearing at the spectre, which collides with a thunk. Nawar says, If I must subdue you by physical means, so be it. I will deaden the fighting spirit in your bodies. Billy reacts to the spectre being struck with the boulder, and he says, Oh, he plays rough. And then the caption for the next panel, Uprooting a petrified tree, Nawar hurls it like a lance at the ghostly guardian. Of course, it's a Gardner Fox, Murphy Anderson-involved spectre story, so we've now got a few pages of the spectre fighting a large oddly shaped demon type figure from another <laughs> realm tick 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 etc so yes Nawar picks up this tree hurls it at the spectre it collides with a quack sound effect and it's not very clear but it appears the spectre is thinking or saying strange my astral body feels the blows with which he assaults me as if it were mere flesh and blood okay so it must hurt that's the end of page five top of page six Nawar has some very helpful cbc dialogue as he stands amongst the trippy background and stamps his foot and he says I stamp my foot on the ground here, and underground water gushes out there. With a giant whoosh, we see the spectre being blown up into the air by a geyser of water, which has burst out the ground beneath him. Billy quakes in fear. The caption for the next panel says, Stung to frantic fury by the buffets he has absorbed, the grim ghost flings himself at the Lord of Giempo. Spectre goes for a punch, but, well, very helpfully, the spectre thinks what happens. My fist! went right through him. And we see what looks like a portal appearing in Nawar's stomach and the spectre's hand poking out the other side. It's a, it's a great idea. Could have been a bit tidier, I suppose. Nawar says, <laughs> You are helpless in my realm. I am invulnerable to anything you do against me. And the spectre does the see what you see thinking in the next panel as he lobs a boulder towards Nawar, he thinks. He hit me with this rock. Yet I am unable to do the same to him. Yeah, because the rock sort of swerves around Nawar and keeps going. Spectre continues to think, Yes, he is the lord of this domain, all right. And perhaps that very fact will help me. So the spectre in the next panel says, Billy, quick, empty your pockets. And he thinks, If he's a typical youngster, he'll have something I can use as a weapon against Nawar. Caption for the next panel. Out of Billy's pockets tumble a marble, a top, a ball of twine, a compass, a coin. Spectre says, Ah, this marble ought to start the ball rolling. Nawar cries in the background, Ha <laughs> ha, a mere marble against my demonic powers. Top of page seven now, caption for the first panel. Magically, the marble enlarges in the gifted hands of the Spectre. I love the way the Spectre's name is just written in really big creepy lettering again. Yeah. It's given quite a lot of emphasis. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of panels that have done that, so yes. Sure enough, we see that the marble in the spectre's right hand, and it's radiating as if it's growing. In the next panel, we see that it's grown even bigger. It looks almost like the spectre's holding a small sun. The spectre is saying, It is evident that nothing on your world can harm you, Nawar, and my body is too intangible to cause you any harm. 
but a little marble can do things in a big way when it comes from Earth, and when earthly objects are anathema to your anti-Earth structure. And that's a long way of saying that basically the spectre looms forward and with a crunk strikes Nabor in the back of the head with the marble that is enlarged to huge size. This is We must sort of pause here and say the storytelling here is very interesting because it's, mm-hmm. it's effectively two panels worth of action yeah. sharing the same panels. Yeah. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm already reassessing my opinion <laughs> from the surface, the surface changes of what Mr. Adams had done. In the next panel, we can see that the spectre has taken one of the other things that Billy had in his pocket, and the spectre says, Just as this earth top ought to set your wits twirling, and he's sent a spinning top, growing to a large size, with a thwunk. That collides with Nawar, who exclaims, <clears throat> and we can also see uh, Billy's compass and the coin he had and the ball of string floating about as well. So will the Spectre use them also? Let's see. As we arrive at the top of page 8, and the caption for the first panel says, Getting into the spirit of the fight, Billy yanks off a shoe, and... Yep, this is tremendous. Takes off his shoe, throws it to the Spectre, saying, Here, Spectre, use my shoe on the heel. And that's what happens in panel 2 of this page. The Spectre has grown the shoe to a massive size, and with a zunk, he whaps Nabor on the back. Nabor goes down. And in panel 3, we see that Spectre has used the aforementioned ball of string to tie Nabor to another wizened old tree. Spectre then says, Tied up with earth twine, Nabor is powerless to stop us from leaving his realm. One shoe on, one shoe off Billy says, I sure am anxious to get back to my mother, and boy, wait till I tell the fellas about what happened to me. Mm. Now, look at this panel here. The detailing is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Just the way that the compass and the coin are still floating about, but there's details yeah. of twisted branches and just odd shapes. It's almost Salvador Dali-like in what they're trying to do. Yeah, it's, it's very sort of surreal. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mentioned the Steve Ditko Doctor Strange earlier on. Yeah. That feels like a definite influence, I think. Mm-hmm. Without a doubt. More so, I feel, than any other sort of stories we've seen so far. It's. I wonder if that was a deliberate choice. Anyway, a tiny caption says, story continues on second page following. The next page is a full-page advertisement for the 80-page giant Lois Lane issue 86, which I think I owned at one point. Huh. Pretty sure I did. Don't have it now. Listeners, if you want to send Peter and I a copy of Lois Lane 86, please feel free. Email us at theearth2podcast at gmail.com and we'll give you the address. So back to the story, top of page 9. A little caption says part 2 and a large, oversized, twisty bit of text says The, the hundred, hundred Year Long Day. day. Interesting. And a tiny caption underneath that says Back through the astral barriers between Earth and Gimpo hurtles the spirit sleuth. You see the spectre flying along, bearing Billy in his arms. Spectres sing. Strange. The ethereal force is here. Much stronger than before. You can see all sorts of weird shapes twisting and turning all around them. Hang on, Billy. I'm going to fight them off with my necromantic powers. I don't know what necromantic means, but as long as it does the trick. And the rest of this panel, again continuing the same style as we saw in the earlier pages... The, the narrative continues. We see the top of the spectre's head almost and Billy's hair sort of stretching up and it looks like they're dissolving into the, the weird background all around them. Very stylized. Mm-hmm. The spectre is saying, I have the spectral feeling this struggle against the forces of evil has only just begun. Even now I sense those phantom pilgrims chanting a frightful incantation. And the rest of this panel is rounded out with a little sort of it reminds me of Aladdin's lamp. It's a little yes. oil-burning type device so there's a little bit of smoke coming out of it. And amongst this smoke is a text caption that says, Who are those demonologists that have taken over the old quarter of Gateway City? From what thermaturgic talismans have they derived their cabalistic controls? Let the cosmic cloak of the spectre swirl about you. 
carry you back in time to more than three hundred years ago in a small town of provincial England, where a religious sect has banded together to worship in their own fashion. There's a slight curve to the panels here as we flash back. We see a bunch of old school pilgrim type figures, all being lit by the fire they're nearly in front of. There's a full moon in the window behind them, and they're all chanting, Hear us, almighty mighty Newar! Come to us, your chosen people! Bring to us your awesome powers! We are interrupted before the next proper bit of art by a bit of flame with a caption on it that says, For years their prayers remained unanswered until their patriarch, Zebabeb Dawson, made an important discovery. Yeah, we see Zebabeb, wild-eyed and wild-beard, unrolling a scroll. He says, This old scroll reveals we have been worshipping Naywar incorrectly. We must use certain talismans, very ancient ones, in order for our pleas to be heard and answered by Naywar. So we arrive at the top of page 10. But before those age-encrusted objects could be secured, angry villagers stormed into the demonologist's house of worship. This panel shows what appears to be Zebabeb at the front with his pals. They're all sort of cowering. And then the open doorway, with a full moon in the background, obviously. Mm. A chap carrying a pitchfork and everything. Another guy carrying what looks like a golf club. (laughs) Probably (laughs) isn't. Yes, these are the other local not-demon-worshipping villagers. They found them out. And the first one of them says, Drive out the demon-worshippers! Slay them! Aye, lest they bring evil spirits to enslave us! Gosh, well, the next panel, you know, it's bringing me round. (laughs) (laughs) My rage at Mr Adams not being around is, you know, is nice, but it's like, it's weird, Mm. it's weird. definite change. Yeah, there's a caption that says, Fearing for their lives, the cultists fled across the ocean in a leaky old ship. So we see this leaky old ship and a very stylized sea that it's floating on. We can see some Mm -hmm. seagulls and... It almost reminds me of how... Remember how sometimes the Sandman just got a little bit weird? Yes, uh-huh. And just got slightly more stylized in the, the straightforward sort of storytelling uh-huh. sense. It's given me similar vibes to that. You used to get it quite a lot in some of the vertical comics. They'd get a few pages when f- things were drawn by different artists when they went a bit odd. Yeah. It looks like a first sketch that P.K. Russell would have done for something. Yes. If you know what I mean. That's a good way of putting so, it. Yeah, I always know what you mean. But a first sketch. So Yeah. So we see, so we see this ship twisting on the ocean... Looks like a full moon behind it. And someone on the boat is saying, In the new world, we will have religious freedom to worship whomever and however we choose. The next bit of narrative panel shows them having parked their boats, their big ship in the background, and taken a rowing boat. And they've come ashore in this new land. I'm guessing it's Zebabeb at the front, and he's saying, We shall build our homes and altars here. And there's a bit of text in a caption box that says, Avoiding the normal sites for settlers, Jamestown, Plymouth, Charlestown... Those pilgrims sailed up a long, broad river to a strip of land they named Rude Point, which later was to become Gateway City. Yeah, there's a bit more narrative going on in the next panel. The caption says, The settlers exchanged gifts with the Indian natives. We see some slightly stereotypical drawings of um, indigenous Americans. There's a trunk on the ground in front of them. We can see open. And the pilgrims with their beards and their big buckles on the hats and Head's sort of pilgrim chap is thinking, These red men possess the ancient talismans we need to summon Nawar to us. We'll make friends with them, lull them to a false sense of security, and then steal the ritual objects. The next panel is very useful, actually, because it makes me think that that wasn't a branch that was being flung around. It might have been one of these ritual objects, because we see a hand holding a set of antlers. We see a stone tablet. We see a bit of scroll, a bit of a necklace. And helpfully, this person who's holding the antlers thinks 
the aged antlers of a deer, ancient shell money, stone-covered with writing so old the Indians have forgotten what it means, time-rotted wood in the shape of a bark scroll. We arrive at the top of page 11 now, and the first bit of text caption says, But the Indians were not the foolish savages the colonists believed upon discovering the theft. Yeah, this panel shows the pilgrims legging it as they're being chased by some of the indigenous people. One of the indigenous people cries, Kill Paleface, all of them! And then we have a little bit of text that says, Then came the medicine man, armed with gourds and rattles to curse the pilgrims. Yeah, the medicine man is overweight, he's older, wild staring eyes, wide screaming mouth as he cries, I call upon great Manitou, take away their breath of life! Caption for the next panel. But to counter the shaman curse, Patriarch Zebabeb shouted an incantation of his own. Yes, we see Zebabeb kneeling down. There's a table with a bottle and some plates on it. It's obviously time for a snack, and we can see that he's got some of the ancient artefacts that we, we met on the previous page on the ground in front of him. And Zebabeb is chanting, Nawa, send help to us who cry thy name. Grant safety now to man and dame. The interesting thing about Neil Adams when he was doing it was his panels weren't very, you know, they're quite often cut off at diagonals. They were going weird shapes. Yes. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about this is we get the odd little bit of panel going off at weird shapes, but it's the way the narrative progresses actually even within the panel. Indeed, yeah. It's very different to anything I think Mm -hmm. we've seen before. And I think, see if it wasn't quite so cartoony, I think I would be liking it a lot more. I mean, it's (laughs) it's marvellous. Anyway, this continuing narrative panel shows Nawar all yellow, descending in a cloud with a couple of freaky, surreal elements surrounding him. A piece of text captioning in the cloud reads, And in the world of Giempo, Nawar heard that frenzied supplication. Yeah, we heard Zebabeb because Nawar is crying, The prayers of those who worship me are not strong enough to give me the power on earth to save them. All I am able to do is restore four of them to life for one day of each century. Ah, so... Page 11 now rounds out with a shot of the old town of Gateway City we saw at the start. There's a full moon. <laughs> Keep count, listeners. And a bit of text at the bottom of the page that says, And so the people of Rude Point faded from the world of the living. Only the stark reality of their houses remained to show where the demonologists had existed. Over the page to page 12. And the first caption says, Years, decades rolled by until one day in 1768... Four figures stirred to life and set forth upon their mission. Yes, this is very creepy as we see shots of the four pilgrims with wide staring eyes looking like brightly coloured horrible ghosts walking along the streets of the old town with the full moon in the background, obviously. One of them says, We must find the ancient bark scroll and stone, the antlers and wampum. And we see an arrow on the pavement leading us to the next part of the story. A caption says, they managed to find three of the talismans when the curse of the Indian medicine man overtook them. Yeah, we see basically the pilgrims, one of them bearing the antlers, one of them bearing the scroll, one with presumably the wampum. It looks like they've been set on fire, basically. That's quite amusing. <laughs> and one of them scarily cries, We must wait another hundred years! And then we have a little bit more text continuing the story that says, 1868. The demonologists revive to continue their search for... Yes, and we see a pair of frilly cuffed hands reaching out and grabbing the, the ancient stone. There's a full moon through the window. The person who the hands belong to is saying, 
the ancient stone with the pictograph writing. At last we have the four aged objects with which to open the gates between Earth and Gimpo. Summon Nawar to us. Restore us to full life. Give us wealth and power. So page 12 is rounded out. Oh, look, there's a full moon that has some text on it, and it says... On the way to their place of worship, time again ran out on the four pilgrims as they faded from the sight of the living. And then there's the last little bit of text on this page that says... Until today, 1968, each demonologist rose from the dust of the past century to complete their evil ritual. Yeah, we see the four pilgrims, one with the antlers, one bearing his blunderbuss, one with the tablet, and one which is presumably the wampum. So there we go. I'm going to look wampum up in the dictionary when I finish this, because I don't know what it means. So, we're now at the top of page 23, and it's a weird, sort of twisted, nightmarish shot of gentleman Jim Corrigan running down the streets of Old Town, and sure enough, we can see the full moon behind him. And there's a bit of text helpfully placed in a window of a shop that says, Meanwhile, what of Detective Captain Jim Corrigan? His task has been to find and capture the four pilgrims. And echoing around the street that Corrigan's racing down, there is some chanting which goes, Nagatha! Nagatha! Thronstha! As Jim runs along, and I like this, actually, we can really clearly see the streak of white in his hair at the front, that's quite smart. Mm -hmm. Jim's running along and he's saying, That eerie chant, emanating from the pilgrims' temple of worship. Some more chanting that says, or whatever. And in the rest of this panel, we see the four pilgrims, obviously in a basement somewhere, kneeling down in front of a blazing fire with the, the stone tablet and the scroll and the antlers and the rest of it in front of them. There's some text on the fire, and it says, Ahead of him, eerie flames. Flame brothers to the Beltane and the Walpurgis fires, the Samhain fires of Ireland and the Scolovian fires of France. Fiery tongues flare upward, questing through the spider-webbed air toward a destination out of this world. Yeah, the pilgrims are chanting as all this is going on. They're saying, Hela, Sabah, Very scary. The next panel, bottom page 13, we see Jim arriving at the top of the stairs to this basement. He's looking down. You can see the flame burning in front of the pilgrims. Jim's thinking, like a scene out of the weird tales of H.P. Lovecraft. August Derleth, Clark Ashton Smith. Gotta put a stop to this. First panel of page 14, we see Jim rushing into the basement, and he yells, Stop! I arrest you in the name of... But the pilgrims cut him off with some chanting. And we see smoke appearing around Jim. And in the next panel, he's surrounded by rings of fire. And he cries, What? I'm pinned inside these coils of fire. Elsewhere, the caption for the next panel says, At this moment, the Wonder Wraith is crashing through the barricades that separate Earth from the astral lands. We see the spectre, still bearing Bill in his arms, flying along. Looks through, they're going through a weird giant cobweb, and there looks mm -hmm. like the sort of door frames floating around. It's very, very strange. Yeah. The spectre's saying, Each succeeding barrier is more difficult to penetrate. How could they be increasing in intensity? And then a scary large voice says, because I am adding my powers to them, Spectre. And we see Spectre Billy flying past a giant, scary, red, horned head. And the Spectre says, You, Nawar, but I left you helplessly bound on your world of Gempo. How could you? The chantings of my followers on Earth sent a stream of magic flames into Gempo and burned away your earthly twine. Caption them for the next panel. As the Wonder Wraith hurtles through the last barrier and sets his feet on familiar terrain... We're back in Old Town again. 
Billy and Inspector are there, but also, rather worryingly, Nawar standing on the street in front of them. Looks almost like Nawar standing in a puddle. Has he peed himself? I don't know, but Nawar is saying, At the bidding of the forty monologists, I shall bring them wealth and prosperity. As for me, I shall dominate your earth. The Nawar worshippers are making me invulnerable with their prayers, so not even you, Spectre, can stop me. Run, Billy, run! Find Jim Corrigan. He'll protect you while I fight off Nawar. There's a full moon in the background, we should say. Continued on second page following. We arrive at the top of page 15, and yes, <laughs> some more pages of the Spectre fighting a demon in a, a Gardner Fox, Murphy Anderson comic. The caption for the first panel says... Next instant, the ghostly guardian is grabbed and lifted high above Gateway City. Yes, with a full moon in the background, Nawar grabs the Spectre under the arms, and they both stretch up into the sky. Nawar says, For our colossal fight, Spectre, I assume the shape of a colossus. He doesn't look anything like that metal X-Men chappy. Spectre nope. replies, Actually, this is funny. The Spectre looks as if he's recoiling slightly here because Nawar has <laughs> bad breath. <laughs> yes. Spectre replies, I'm giving you no size advantage over me, Nawar. So the Spectre's obviously rearing up too. Very interesting narrative sort of style going on here. The next sort of sequence in the story shows Nawar with his hands on the Spectre's shoulder, but the Spectre's left arm stretching out behind him, and we can see a motor vehicle junkyard behind him. Spectre is saying, On Gienpo, you are helpless against objects native to Earth. I'm putting your bolster and vulnerability to a test. And the next panel we see the Spectre has gathered Dozens, dozens of wrecked cars and scrunched them, smashed them all up into a ball. Helpfully, the Spectre says, I'm moulding these abandoned vehicles into a gigantic metal ball. And he throws them at Nawar with a crang sound effect. Nawar doesn't seem too fast. He says, Fool, do you think I would have come here if you could defeat me this easily? No, Spectre, such earthly trifles no longer have power over me. Gosh, top of page 16 now, first bit of text says... Harsh, mocking laughter resounds from coast to coast over the land these supernatural beings have made their battleground. Yes, we see large, echoing laughter. Lots of ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha. <laughs> 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 Very like what we got from Mr. Adams in Die Spectre again. Yes. In issue two. And there's a full moon in the background as Nawar says... I am immune to all forms of physical and astral dangers. Can you claim as much, Spectre? And with a thud in the next insert panel, Nawar kicks the Spectre in the chest. Spectre recoils, thinking, Oh, ordinarily a blow like that would have as much effect on me as the tap of a feather. Desperately, Spectre calls upon his knowledge of ancient lore, of sorcerer's secrets. It looks as if they've gone suitably cosmic now. It looks like they've grown to a massive size and are standing away from the Earth. Spectre is raising his hands above his head, gesturing, and he's saying, Even in black magic there are certain laws which must be obeyed. Thus, for every spell, there is a counter-spell. We get a close show of what he's generating with his hands as he continues to think, This cat's-eye gem which I am enlarging is protection against witchcraft and death. So obviously he sends that against Nawar. In the final panel, it collides with Nawar with a crack, but Nawar says, Pa! That jewel may harm witches and warlocks, but not Nawar! Blimey, top of page 17 now. Text for the first panel says, Once again, the Wonder Wraith utilises a countermeasure against evil. The Spectre in this panel has rendered, created, conjured up a massive, gigantic, some kind of American coin. It's got an eagle on it. I think it may be a silver dollar. It makes sense if it's silver. 
Listeners, if you want to clarify, I'm not going to presume. <laughs> anyway, Spectre strikes Neewar with his giant coin, saying, Silver has power over werewolves and vampires against such night devils as the Lilin. And with a crack, it collides with Neewar, but Neewar replies, But not over Neewar, the invulnerable. Neewar grabs Spectre by the shoulders in the next panel, saying, My turn again, Spectre. Observe. The powers of two worlds give me the strength to handle you like a ragdoll. Yeah, we can see them standing over the earth. It's very effective. I wonder if people enough can see it. So in the next panel, um, with a full moon in the background, there's a caption that says, With a resounding crash, the spectre is flung against the jagged walls of the Grand Canyon. Yes, it's that part of the story where we tour the world as they have a fight. <laughs> Tremendous. Whack! Is the sound effect as the spectre collides with the side of the canyon, and he thinks, Nawar must have some weakness. Every evil being has one. What could it possibly be? Spectre appears to have shrunk back down to his normal size in the next panel, because we see Nawar standing in the canyon, with a spectre in his hand, and then he flings him away, saying, It won't be long now till I knock the spirit forces out of you. Caption for the first panel on page 18 says, Landing hard against a mountain ash tree, the ghostly guardian is grimly aware that Nawar is thundering toward him to end his unearthly existence. Yes, with the full moon in the background, we see the spectre struggling to stand up. Nawar is striding towards him. Spectre's thinking, A clue to his weakness. Must find it before he eliminates my ectoplasmic energies. He gets a nice close-up in moody red in the next panel, where he thinks, I can sense that my alter ego is helplessly caught in magic coils of fire. Is this the end of both of us? And then, with the spectre leaning against the tree and a full moon in the background, Nawar looms over him, saying, This time, spectre, you shall die and stay dead forever. Which also kind of echoes, again, issue two with die again, spectre, and all that yes. stuff. So, this final panel of page 18 is rounded out with a caption that says, The story continues on the next page following. The rest of the page is taking up the advertisement for the showcase issue of Angel and the Ape, or at least one of them. Uh, so there we go. We might meet Angel and the Ape at some point, I'm sure we will. Top of page 19, part 3. Ashes, ashes to, to ashes, ashes. Dust, dust to dust. That caption very helpfully is rendered as part of a full moon which is looming overhead. Another shot of spooky old, old town of Gateway City, and some text written on the road says... In the old quarter of Gateway City, Jim Corrigan strains and struggles without effect. We see Jim still struggling in the coils and twists of fire, and he's saying, No use. I can't break out. Why hasn't Spectre come to my aid? Huh? Footsteps running this way? And Billy appears. Water pistol in hand. Can you see where this is going? Billy says, Captain Corrigan, I'll help you. Go back, Billy. These are magical flames. You can't do anything against them. And then with a full moon looming in the background, Billy says, I've got my water pistol, and it's loaded. It'll put out those flames. No, Billy, not a chance. Water won't douse this fire. And with a vroosh, Billy fires his water pistol in the next panel, saying, You'll be surprised what my water pistol can do. There's a sound effect in the next panel. Captain Corrigan says, Ha! Huh, it's dousing the flames! That's because it isn't ordinary water, Captain Corrigan. I filled the pistol with magic water on Gienpo. I like this panel, actually. There must be a heck of a lot of water in that water pistol. <laughs> yes. Well, it's magic water, so you know. Yeah, Jim looks absolutely sodden. It looks like he's now standing in a puddle with the steam creating as the, the flames sort of burn off. Um, <laughs> page 19 is rounded out with a caption that says, Continued in the second page following. We pass a full page advertisement for Aurora model kits. 
and we return. Top of page 20, the caption on the first panel says, Moments later, Jim crashes into the circle of Kabbalists. Jim has run back down the flight of stairs into the basement where the devil worshippers are, and he collides with them all, flames roaring out the fireplace, as Jim punches out one of the pilgrims. One of the other ones says, No, no, you're ruining our incantation! And another one says, And unless it's finished, nay war will not be completely invulnerable on Earth! Jim gets stuck in the next panel, punching left, right and centre, and he says, My job's to arrest you four guys, and I'm a dutiful cop. You missed your connection, but I didn't! The thud, he punches out the guy who was holding the antlers. In the next panel, this is very striking, Jim grabs the antlers, silhouetted by the fire, as one of the pilgrims says, Death to the unbeliever! Yep, so Jim, silhouetted against the flames, is thinking, can use these antlers for those two pilgrims horning into the action. And then with a clunk, he slaps them with the antlers, basically, in the next panel, thinking, Now, my only concern is for Speck. I wonder how he's making out. And we cut back to the spectre in the next panel, still leaning against the tree that he was up against the last time we saw him. We can see, well, basically, <laughs> we're looking through the crotch <laughs> Between the legs. Of Nawar here. Between the legs. Between the legs of Nawar. Like the cover to Justice League number four. The Giffen Demetrius, Justice League four. Yes, which paints the spectre as Booster Gold here. Yes. <laughs> it's not quite the same, but it's the same. It's, anyway, so Spectre cowering against the tree is thinking, Somewhere there must be a countermeasure to reverse the evil energies of Nawar. Wait! As a full moon looms in the background, the spectre thinks, Nawar, in reverse, is Rowan! And this mountain ash tree is also known as the Rowan tree. He says out loud in the next panel. In superstition, lore, one of the most potent charms against evil is Rowan wood. You see the spectre grabbing for the tree. In the next insert panel, he's ripping the tree up out of the ground as Nawar lunges towards him. Spectre's thinking, it could be sheer coincidence that my foe's name in reverse is Rowan, but it's my only and last hope of overcoming him. With a wonk! Sound effect, that's very spectacular. The spectre strikes Nawar on the top of the head with the tree. Tiny caption says, continued in the second page following. Top of page 22, the spectre stands over Nawar, who's down on the ground. The tree seems to have worked. The spectre says, his supernatural powers have been expelled from his body by contact with the Rowan tree. Rowan tree given massive emphasis. And then, in that other way that it kind of combines panels into the same panel, mm-hmm. We get a nice moody shot, looking very skull-like, actually. Very like Skeletor, the He-Man yeah. body. Or Taskmaster, yeah. Shot of the Spectre, then, with a full moon behind him as he says, It was a close call, but once again good has triumphed over evil. Now, there's a lot going on in the next sequence. Quite a very busy panel. This is very unique art stylings, and it does work very, very well. It must be said. We see the Spectre flying up away from the Grand Canyon, bearing both Nawar and the Rowan Tree as they fly up in front of a full moon, and the spectre says, Ah, I sense that Jim has overcome those pilgrim worshippers. Now to speed Nawar back to Gyempo. And then we're back in that weird, freaky, surrealistic, howl-around, scary place. As we see Nawar with the, the tree over him, and the spectre with his arms folded watching, saying, No force on earth or Gyempo will ever again enable Nawar to enter the natural universe. So that seems to suggest, then, that the round tree completely negates his power. It's very interesting. This is mm-hmm. There's definitely a Dali influence in this one, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't you? I mean, it, it looks in the background yeah. there, like there's a set of French windows that are open to, the, to show yeah. the full moon behind them, and there's doorways and stretches and weird shapes. Very, very interesting, I think. Mm-hmm. Definitely the case. Slow dissolve, then. Top page 23. The caption for the first panel says, In the demon worshipper's room, soon after... 
We see the demon worshippers down on the ground, the spectre standing with Jim Corrigan and Billy. The spectre says, We must destroy the talismans they use to summon Nawar. Corrigan says, And with those pilgrims in prison, they'll have no chance to... Spectre! Spectre! Captain Corrigan! Look! And in panel 2, page 23, as the full moon peeps in through the window behind them, the pilgrims in the foreground of the panel will start to dissolve. Billy says, They're turning to dust! When the supernatural energies were driven out of Nawar, he lost his hold on the pilgrims. Mere mortals, they succumbed to the corrosive effects of time. And then there's a caption for the final panel that says, And, as a breeze blows into the room, stirring the dust about... Yep, we see a full moon through the open window as the curtains blow in the breeze, and the dust of the dissolved pilgrims coils and twirls in the wind, and the spectre concludes, Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. The The end. end. So how do you feel about the art now? It's very effective, <laughs> but it's like you know. I think I think I said to you in the preparation. My first feeling was when I read it, when I sort of skimmed through it doing the prep, doing the cast list and all that. Uh-huh. It felt it was so different from what Adams had done. Yeah, it was like what if you got someone that draws the Bash Street Kids or Urwali or mm-hmm. Dennis the Menace to draw an issue of Batman? Yeah, what if you got the Archie Comics guys to draw an issue of the Punisher? <laughs> <laughs> for a Frank Miller scripted Daredevil, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. It works for the story, I can't lie. Yes, it's very atmospheric, I think, to be honest. It is very good. It really, really mm. works for the story. But for me, the figure work is very cartoonish looking. Mm. The background stuff is amazing. It's very yeah. lush. The the scary, psychedelic, surreal stuff is great. Mm-hmm. But the figures and stuff just looked a little bit too cartoony. And it's such a weird, heavy... It's almost like 180 degrees mm-hmm. away from the, the realism yeah. look of what Neil Adams was doing. Mm-hmm. It was a difficult pill to swallow, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, I stand by what I said earlier on about it's looking very much like a, an EC comic. Yes. From the 50s, because I'm just looking at right now at well, the bottom spread at page nine. It, that's uh-huh. totally Graham Ingalls or Alf Eldstein or someone that's, that's done that. It's very heavily influenced by that. Yes. It looks fantastic. Yeah, especially the, the expressions in their faces. I mean, yeah, without a doubt. Every single person in that crowd has a clear expression. Mm-hmm. It's skillful as heck. It's wonderfully rendered. Mm-hmm. Stylistically, I think it's just it's my trouble. It's just so different from, <laughs> from what we had. I know what you say, but the way the panels are laid out as well, they're very square on. Yes. Whereas, as you said earlier on, Neil Adams, he always like approached it differently. There's more slants and everything. I mean, page 11, it's got an interesting panel layout, but basically it's just two panels, but it's almost like the bottom panel looks like a giant house. The way they've got the, the arched roof, it's very peculiar. But for the most part, it is pretty much ordinary shaped panels with hardly any deviation from that. Yeah, I mean, there's, there are moments, like, like I highlighted as we are telling it, where the, the story mm-hmm. sort of continues within yeah, the huh. panel. It's almost, there's almost like two panels worth of illustration going on in the same one. Almost like an inset panel except without a border, yeah. Yeah, and that's that's great, that's admirable. Mm. It's it's lovely. It's very, very good. Yeah. See if we'd had this guy straight after Murphy Anderson. Uh-huh. I don't think I would have found it as jarring. True. Very true. I think because what Neil Adams was doing was so stylistically different to what Murphy did. Yeah. If you like the photorealism of what Neil Adams was doing, yeah. then to go back and obviously, the spe- the spectre himself just looks like Murphy's drawn him. I think it, you know it mm-hmm. doesn't. The spectre in these comics doesn't look any different from the way Murphy Anderson was rendering him. Right. If we hadn't had Neil Adams in the middle, I don't think I would have found this too much of a jump. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Murphy's influence is, is obviously strong because the spectre still looks like the spectre, and mm-hmm. his Grandietti's layouts and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. He's telling the story, so it's, it feels like an interim sort of stage between what Murphy Anderson was doing and mm-hmm. what Grandietti was doing his own. At the risk of repeating myself a million times, it's <laughs> 
it's just a bit too much of a jump from what we've had in the last couple of issues. Yeah, I think primarily the main difference from what we've been reading recently is it's back to Gardner Fox, and it does feel very much like this could have been issue two after the Captain Skull story. Yes, it really does. So weird. It's not really in many ways that different to the Captain Skull or the showcase issues. It's like uh-huh. a weird demon is summoned from the past with lots of chanting. Mm-hmm. The Spectre goes to another realm, has a fight, gets chased back to Earth, goes to an enormous size, they have a fight, then he gets yep. chased back again and, and the Spectre wins. Finds the MacGuffin that actually defeats him, that's it, yeah. It's almost formulaic. It's textbook Gardner. Yeah, it's getting a bit repetitive and that's mm-hmm. what I think was good about the, the, the Mike Friedrich issue and Neil Adams ones was it's a bit nonsensical at points. There are some, a few mm-hmm. narrative leaps, but it's... It's yeah. weird. It almost does seem like they're they're struggling to find a consistent approach to what to do with the Spectre at this point, doesn't it? Yeah. I don't want to be one of these guys that criticises something for not being something else. On its own sure. terms, it's brilliant. The artwork's uh-huh. phenomenal. I really, really liked it. As I read the story properly, I was impressed, but again, it was just... It's... But it is a very jarring difference between the last couple of issues. Yes. Yeah. Very jarring difference, and as we said there, the story just feels like we've seen it all before. Uh-huh. Although, admittedly, not as colourfully. That's an interesting thing. As I was doing my digging about to try and get some more details on why Neil Adams left the Spectre, in this interview with him that's in issue 56 of Comic Book Marketplace, published in February 1998, Neil actually talks a little bit about the colour process. The interviewer says, How did you achieve the range and richness in your colouring that gave your work the appearance of being hand-coloured, not mechanically screen-separated? Neil says he was told by Saul Harrison that if too much colour was printed, the colours would tend to slip as they sat on one another and bind the machine. Neil said to him, But Saul, this isn't the New York Times magazine where the colours sit on top of good paper. We're printing in toilet paper here. Moisture from the colour gets absorbed immediately through newsprints. So Saul gave me permission to put some heavier colours in. Suddenly, my stories were showing up with more different colours than anybody else had. Neil continues, But I hadn't solved the real problem. Marvel Comics had twice as many colours as DC, 64 as opposed to 32, simply mm. because they had two additional yellow tones, 50% and 25%. Oh. Saul told me Marvel was paying extra to get tone yellow, and that didn't make any sense to me. So I suggested to Carmine and editors like Joe Orlando that they asked Jack Libowitz, the owner of DC Comics, why Marvel was getting twice as many colours as DC. So the next day, Jack storms into Saul's office yelling, What the hell is this? Marvel's getting twice as many colours as we're getting, but they're paying more for it, Saul answered. You think that cheap blankety-blank over there is paying more for his bleeping comic books than I am? (laughs) Leibowitz told Saul to call the colour separator, who separated both Marvel and DC. And the colour separator says, you want tone yellow? You've got it. And it seems that they were, of course, charging Marvel the same prices, which meant that from 1941 to 1967, DC had been printing with only half the colours available to them that they possibly could have had. But on that very day, DC Comics had twice as many colours as they had the day before. And you can definitely see that in this issue yeah, that uh, we've just read. I mean, it, it might have been the case in the Neil Adams issues as well, but much, much clearer in this one. Mm-hmm. Listeners, the way it works is obviously colour printing. It's the percentage of red, percentage of blue, percentage of yellow. Yeah. And obviously, if they add 50%, 25% yellow, it means they can mix and match those with the other percentages of red and blue just to create a wider colour palette. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that's not patronising. Hopefully that makes sense to anyone that doesn't really know too much about colouring. But this issue really, really shows it off. It pops. It certainly does. Even the cover just the cover just straight away with that bright yellow and green against the dark blue. Yeah. And then I'm almost contradicting myself here. <laughs> but it's <laughs> going to be a lot of fun picking out the panels to put on Instagram, I tell you. <laughs> the colour is, is really the strongest part, of, I think, of this one. It really pops. It kind of softens the blue almost. I mean, it's so rich, yeah. so, so lurid. It's going to be very interesting to sort of see how the, the other comics that this period that we do and, and see mm-hmm. if they sort of look so different as this one did. Yeah. So we'll jump on now to issue eight 
and spectrographs the letter column. And the first letter says, Dear Editor, this is to thank you and your fine staff for the most beautifully produced comic issue I've seen since the second showcase Spectre. What am I referring to? The Spectre number six, of course. Of course, what else could it be? Indeed. Murphy Anderson is back and the Spectre is once more looking as he ought to. Lest there be any sceptics, uninitiated, as I like to call them, who believe Anderson isn't the unassailably right artist for the Spectre, then they should without delay sit down with this magazine and study it from cover to cover, overlooking not one panel. Let them notice particularly Anderson's splendid facial shots. Let them see the flowing cape, which, in Neil Adams' hands, always resembled a crumbled piece of cardboard. Oh, good God. And let them rediscover, most of all, the spectre of the striking contrasts. Black and white, black and green, black and orange. Enough of Adam's crotch-hatching shading, which almost ruined the spine-tickling aura of macabre mystery that Anderson worked so hard to evoke in those early issues. Pardon me for slighting Jerry Grandinetti's contributions. His imaginative page spreads resulted in a panel-to-panel flow of such sheer kinetic energy that one is tempted to say he is on the way to developing the cinematic comic magazine. Moreover, his Dali-esque backgrounds are a dimension of surrealism that is at once altogether appropriate to the phantasmagoric world that the Spectre inhabits. Unfortunately, I cannot be so enthusiastic about the figure drawings of Spectre. The ghostly guardian's legs are too stocky, too supermanish to go with the lithe body. Worst is the ludicrous pink-headed, horned, yellow-bodied, clothed-in-the-blue-jockey-shorts monster <laughs> of Grandinetti's. At least Adams, despite the sundry sins he committed against the Spectre strip, managed to draw great monsters. However, considering this is Grandinetti's first crack at the strip, I guess I'm being too critical. I've been told that Gardner Fox has been stale for the last two years. Well, not of this story, Pilgrims of Peril, is any example. Fox always best when dealing with the supernatural created a set of villains and elevated them to near-saga-like proportions. Bravo! And the dust-to-dust motif at the end was perfectly in keeping with the story's decidedly religious overtones. And that's from Paul Sador from New York, New York. Again, with the Adams bashing. We've talked about this endlessly. Yeah, I don't get it at all. And he's gone now and they're still bashing him. Yeah. I mean, we're not going to see Neil on the podcast for a wee while. Mm -hmm. We'll see a couple more covers before too long. I think there's an interior coming up where we do an issue Brave and the Bold. You can't compare. Look at issue five, look at issue six. Mm Mm-hmm. Grandinetti might have suited this one better, but I would have loved to have seen Neil drawing that script just to see what, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, don't, I can imagine in Neil's hands that Neil would have looked a little bit more scary. Yeah, you didn't really get a good sense of menace. He looked odd. He looked bulky, yeah. but he had a small, smaller head. Yeah. That seemed shrunken. It was weird. He just looked like a, a cartoon bad. He didn't look like a threat. I don't know. Anyway, the editorial response just basically makes reference to the fact that Paul Cedar has moved from Pennsylvania to Columbia University. So that's nice for Paul. Hope you did well, Paul. You're wrong about Neil Adams. The next letter says, Dear Editor, just because it's called a comic magazine, that does not mean you should make a joke out of it. I'm referring to the Spectre number six. What in the world are you trying to do? Now, Murphy Anderson's art isn't even as good as it was in the Spectre number one. This guy Grandinetti made some mess and Murphy did a great, great job cleaning it up. But it's a far cry from Murphy's best work. His best work is just that, his work. Why do you keep running around in circles? For five issues now, you've been putting out everything but what the fans of the Spectre want, namely Murphy Anderson. That's all. No more, no less, just Murphy. Please cut out the monkey business and give the fans what they want. And if I haven't made it obvious by now, I repeat, Murphy Anderson, the one, the only artist for the Spectre. And that's from Richard Kalina, El Paso, in Texas. 
Oh, well. He's been very harsh. I mean, Grandinetti made some mess. It's, do you know what? The recurring thing that I'm seeing here, mm-hmm. there seems to be an element in the fandom at this point that they just wanted what they had. Yeah, the same thing over and over again. Yeah, yeah. they didn't want anything different, mm-hmm. anything that stretched it, anything that pushed yep. it. It's exactly the same as it is today. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to fault Murphy Anderson's artwork at all. It's gorgeous. And mm-hmm. those, you know, showcase issues that we did, you know, and, and the Brave and Bold issues with the JSA members and all that, they were gorgeous, beautiful, beautifully rendered. But, you know, this is 1968 for crying out loud. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to throw Murphy Anderson in the scrap. He's a, he's a legend, but, you know, things are changing. Mm-hmm. Pizzi's going to read the next letter out because my voice is going. <laughs> Dear editor, ye gods, another artist team? <laughs> Alas, was true. Murphy Anderson and Jerry Grandinetti, the third set of penciler inkers to work in the Spectre. But who cares? Grandinetti gives the magazine what neither Murphy Anderson alone nor Neil Adams ever could. Chaos. <laughs> Let me elucidate. Murph's solo art is very, very slick. His fine lines and the minutiae he details so painstakingly, blades of grass... Grains and boulders, pebbles, strands of hair, make every scene he creates stand out sharply and clearly. The world as depicted by him has no deformity, no dirt, no clutter, even his litter is clean. The perfection of each panel fosters a distinct aura of unreal orderliness that, like many ancient Greek statues, is an ideal rather than a mirror. The word for Anderson art is cosmos in the original sense. The oft-analysed art of Neil Adams is similar to Anderson's in its completeness, again, cosmos. It has, however, a quality the other lacks. Neil's figures are tensely muscular and suggest bulk firmness. Where Murph is supra-photographical to the point of overdrawing, Neil is a mixture of impressionism and structural control. Not so Jerry Grandinetti, whose work I would like to see unembellished by Murphy Anderson's unique style. Pilgrims of Peril in Spectre 6 was bewildering in its artistic complexity. The colours were eye-staggering, the details numerous, the more than generous, even unnecessary, speed and radiance lines confusing, the backgrounds perplexing in their frequent distortion. The word for Grandinetti is, as I said, chaos. His style is so opposite to Anderson's that it is surprising that their techniques are compatible. But they are. Murph tends to stabilise his co-worker's madness, where the latter might run away with himself. Is Grandinetti the artist for the Spectre? Should he, as quoth Neil Adams, have been doing the magazine all along? The answer is, and it reached it only after considerable thought, yes. Spectre belongs to a universe of phantoms and magic and warlocks and demons and good versus evil and bent reality. Any artist who portrays him must have a bit of the wild weird in his style. JG fits the description to a T. And that's from Rand B. Lee, Roxbury, Connecticut. We've had letters from Rand before. Interesting. So there's a second letters page as well. The first letter is from Damon Tobias, and he calls for a bit more context and depth for Jim Corrigan, which is fair enough. Mm -hmm. The next letter goes like this. Dear Editor, I may as well start off by admitting that I'm not writing to review the current Spectre or even to disagree with other fans. I'm writing because I have a problem. I may be termed a real DC fan, real in capital, the capital R. I especially go for your publications, Mr. Editor. Batman, Spectre, Detective, Green Lantern, Justice League. I enjoy them immensely and buy them every time they come out, along with such others as Strange Adventures, Creeper, World's Finest and Secret Six. So the Creeper has appeared for the first time now. That's interesting. Yay. But my little brother is my problem. 
He's hung up on the plotless fistics of Brand 1. Or is that Brand I or Brand L? It's not very clear in the printing. Obviously, he's referring to Marvel, we think. I felt this was a disgrace, and in order to save the family name before he dragged it through the mud, I gave him an issue of the Spectre. I know that the Spectre is a thinking man's comic mag, and he would surely see that the plot, dialogue, and art were much better than those he was accustomed to. He returned it later, saying he tried to read it thoroughly, but didn't understand it, that antimatter, pulsating bullets, and jolts of time suspension were both ridiculous and imaginary. So what did my brother do then? He went back to his room and engrossed himself in the antics of a green-skinned hobgoblin who crushes things. Yes, I think we know who he's referring to there. Very interesting. I'm about ready to give up on him. He refuses to believe the character of Dead Man and rejects the Creeper and Batman, yet he gets his thrills from the escapades of some neurotic guy who climbs walls and shoots webs like a... Well, you get the picture. I'm now asking for suggestions either from you, Mr. Editor, or for some reader who has the same problem. Do I leave my brother and his judgment alone? Or do I try to do something about it? Are Spectre, Batman and Deadman an acquired taste that one works up to gradually? Does his tender age of 12 years make him too young to understand what National Periodicals has to offer? Do comic fans read Brand 1 for a while and then graduate from it into DC? Opens brackets here. When I was young, I got my full of your marvellous competition in the barber shop. I was then delighted to discover DC. Close brackets. I would fully appreciate any advice that anyone has to offer. And that interesting letters from Steve Beery in Michigan and the editorial response. We have no definitive answers to settle your family squabble, but we dug up some pertinent philosophical quotes in your hour of need. Advice <laughs> is like kissing. It costs nothing and is a pleasant thing to do. And not, don't kiss your brother. Uh, in order to convince <laughs> yes. it is necessary to speak with spirit and wit, to advise it must come from the heart. And... Only when a man is safely ensconced under six feet of earth with several tons of enlodding granite upon his chest <laughs> is he in a position to give advice with any certainty. And then he is silent, says the editor, who obviously has a massive quotation book on his desk. There we That's are. excellent. <laughs> We're skipping over the next letter because it's just a bit vague in general, so apologies to Steve Monaco from Iowa. And Pete's going to read the final letter. Dear editor, a letter of constructive criticism here. It will deal with methods of improving the art and correcting some of the story imbalances. You could do much to improve the art by putting it in rectangles running across the page. <laughs> Other presentation panels act as forms and tend to slide off the page, which distract from the original art and its storytelling purpose. I find the spectre to be too powerful. The writer realises this and tries to compensate by producing more powerful villains. The villains are wrapped up in one issue and the imbalance of power enlarges. The use of continued stories and returning villains, I think, would offset this imbalance of power. In conclusion, I think that with these shortcomings corrected, the Spectre could equal any of the past DC efforts. And that's from Lee Childs from Oregon. That's a very interesting point, though, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Spectre's too powerful, the villains are wrapped up in one issue and the imbalance of power, yeah. Yep. All he did was hit Nawar with a tree, That's and that it, was yeah. it. The only recurring villain we've had in him has been, well, first of all, Gat Benson, <laughs> from his very first story, who uh, yes. turned up. And Psycho Pirate, he's not even his villain. Yeah. But he did, it was his second appearance. Yeah, one of the early issues, the Spectre obviously picked up in the whole magic bullet thing from Showcase. So there's, there course. has been a slight yeah. element of ongoing narrative. But I mean, mm -hmm. one of the letters we didn't read out there was talking about, how, you know, Jim Corrigan needs a bit more. We have had a couple of letters of people wondering what happened to Mona, or whatever her name was. Mona Marcy. Yeah, who was kicking yeah. about at one point. So it's it's it feels like the ingredients for success were probably there, but they're not maybe picking up on them. I don't know. We're reading from issue eight there. So now that we've done issue issue six, there's only seven, eight, nine, and ten left to go. Nine and ten are even more radical departures from everything else that's come before. So it'll be interesting mm -hmm. to see what we think of 
over the next couple of issues. On balance, on issue six, I, in the reading, I the proper close reading, I enjoyed it a lot more than I had in the preparation. Good. But I still, Good. as I said, it was it was a bit of a jump. So I was probably overstating at the top when I said I didn't have anything nice to say about it. Maybe, God, maybe Neil Adams was right. Maybe it should have been Grandinetti all along and then we wouldn't really have noticed the difference. <laughs> <laughs> there we are. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing what's going to happen in the upcoming issues of the Spectre. Yes. And if you're looking forward to these issues as well, please get in touch and let us know. You can email us at theearth2podcast at gmail.com. We'll be putting some of this controversial artwork up on our social media. You can find us on Facebook and on Instagram at the Earth 2 Podcast and on Twitter at podcast underscore earth2. And it's the number two for all our social media. It is. And you can also find us on YouTube. You can find us on Spotify. And we'd be supremely grateful if you could go to wherever it is that you get your podcast from and rate and review us if you're able to do that. And you can always go to our coffee page, which you can find via our link tree, which is on all the socials. And you could buy us a coffee, if you like. No pressure. It would be nice. But it would be nice to get some regular feedback. Have we had a single email to the email address since we started, Peter? Yes, but not from listeners. <laughs> well, there you go. So, listeners, you could be the first person to email us. That Wouldn't that be fabulous? Please do. And we'll give you a big shout out on the show. Of course. Of course. Spectre Issue yeah. 6, Pilgrims of Peril. I wish I'd kept count of all the full moons. Oh, plenty much full moons. Maybe I'll go back. Maybe I'll do a full moon montage for Instagram. <laughs> Maybe I won't. On that bombshell. Mm. I've been Peter. He certainly has been Peter. I've been David. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time on... The Earth 2 Podcast! Transmatter Cube activated. Return coordinates set for Earth Prime. But before those age-encrusted objects could be secured, angry village... ba 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 but before those age-encrusted objects could be secured, angry... Angry? Right.